You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory and the church, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are indeed thankful for your word to us for your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We pray now that you would uh, form your people more and more into the image of Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Am I not working here? I don't know. I guess I'll do this. All right. Sorry, you can be seated. Thanks. You know what to do. Uh, If you are a fourth through sixth grader and want to head out with Abby and somebody else, uh, we talk about, yeah, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 3, you can do that. Good to see you all here. Man, it's hot tonight, huh? I feel like it's like a 1930s church house. All the ladies should have fans out or something. But uh, it's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, it's uh, just so good to see you. I'd love to meet with you and talk with you after the service or this week. Uh, We have been walking through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to a church or the churches in surrounding Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. And throughout the years, we have often considered how the English word that we use of love is such a limited word in our language, that we use the same word to express how we feel about our spouses and our dogs is weird. Uh, that we use the same word to express how we feel about our children or siblings or pizza and the ocean is just really strange. Uh, We've talked about this several times. Many of you will know that the Greek language, uh, the language which most most of the New Testament was written in, has four major words for categories for love. We all, we use the same English word, love, for all four of those words. So there are different words for how you care for and are devoted to your family differently than how you care for or more generally feel for all humans. While that is certainly different for how you care for or love uh, your spouse. Well, the Greek word nearly always used for how God sets his love on his people is the Greek word of agape, which is a love of covenant a love of redemption, of unwavering faithfulness. And so if you grew up in a Christian home or in a Christian church, you likely grew up singing the song that I actually ended last week's sermon with. Do you remember how I ended last week's sermon? Just Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And while this song was written in English, I think the agape love of Christ 
The kind of love of covenant faithfulness is the kind of love that we want to instill in our children. One of the very first songs that we might teach them as Christian parents of his covenantal love, of his redemption and his unwavering faithfulness. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, if you've ever read that, if you have kids, the phrase that gets used over and over is this, where the writer says, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. And while the love of Christ is actually something that children can and should begin to understand and believe at the very same time, like as three-year-olds, that they're learning that they like ice cream and that slides are fun or something like that, they should at the same time be learning, yes, Jesus does love me. Paul makes clear in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, that to actually and deeply know and experience the love of Christ is something that you can learn and understand and experience as a child, but actually to really comprehend and experience actually first requires a powerful and mighty act of God in people for them to then understand. If that sounds weird, hang in there with us for this next little bit as we perhaps organize our thoughts for this short passage in two halves where Paul first offers first prayer for the love of Christ. He is asking God for more of the love of Christ, that people might understand the love of Christ. And then after prayer for the love of Christ, he then offers praise for the power of Christ. So first of all, prayer for the love of Christ. Right off the bat here in verse 14, Paul says, for this reason. And if you weren't here last week, he said the exact same thing we saw in verse one of chapter three, for this reason. He's saying, for this reason, meaning he's talking about something that came before that, For this reason, everything that he's been talking about in chapter two, that God has made one new man in place of the two, all things into unity with Christ. And for that reason, Paul said in verse one of chapter three, but then he got sidetracked. Paul went on this rabbit trail, which then led into other rabbit trails for further explaining the mystery of God revealed, the open secret of the cross of Christ now made plainly known as the hope for all of humanity. And then he hits the end of that rabbit trail and he's like, uh, where was I? What was I talking about? Oh, right. Uh, for this reason, and then he's back on track. For this reason, that God has made one new man in place of the two, all things into unity with Christ. For this reason, now I bow my knees before the Father. He begins a prayer for the Ephesian people. I bow my knees before the Father. He is in a place of joyful submission to God the Father. Verse 15, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. In heaven and on earth is named. Paul is saying here that every creature Every human being, every created thing in heaven and on earth. Remember, we've been tracing this idea of of God uniting all things, even realms, together into Christ. Every creature in every grouping, even to its smallest familial unit, the family, at the family level. Every single creature has a common origin in God. He is our Genesis 1-1 creator, the source and the fountainhead of all life, whether we acknowledge that reality or not. Paul is saying that this is the Father, the one to whom he is praying now. This source and fountainhead of all life is not just some nameless and unknowable source of power, but even more specifically, he draws individuals out of their specific and individual families, and he brings them into his own. 
that he might be known to them as father and that they might be known by him as sons and daughters. In the next few weeks, we will certainly think more deeply about the reality of this new covenant family of God and how we are to live as his sons and daughters, as one family. But for now, Paul is actually just describing God as father, as the one to whom he is praying, the source of all life-giving power and uh, all vitality, all of humanity having a common origin. But what... He's saying that he is praying to this God and Father, but what is he actually asking for? What is he praying for? I bow my knees before God the Father, but then for what? Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What Paul wants for the Ephesians, what he prays to God the Father for, is an experience of God's power. We saw in chapter one, verse 19, Paul has already prayed for the Ephesians. He's prayed that they would see and understand what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. But here, even more directly, Paul's not just saying that they might understand or see God's power, but that they might experience it, that they might be strengthened with this power of the Spirit. But what is this power? What does it do and what is it for? What is it? What does Paul want this encounter, this strengthening of spiritual power to produce in them? Does he say that we need this power, we need this strengthening of the Spirit so that we can grow into a church of 3,000 people? That we can plant 100 churches? We need God's power so that we can now finally and fully live a sinless life? That we can always experience physical healing from sickness or pain? No, what is perhaps most surprising in Paul's letters is that almost universally, he actually never really prays that circumstances around his readers would change. Have you noticed this? In Paul's letters, when he is praying, he doesn't say, hey, Ephesians, hey, Corinthians, hey, Galatians, hey, Romans, here's what I want you to know, that I am praying that this thing in your life would change, that this political event might finally happen or that you would finally pull off this big event in the life of your uh, individual lives or in the life of your church, that the universe would finally align in just the right way for your jobs or for your economy or that your vacations would be awesome. No, it's almost some variation of verses 18 and 19, where Paul says that we need God's power so that we can what? We must be strengthened by the Spirit that we might experience his power so that we can, verse 18, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is amazing. We need the strengthening of the Spirit, the power of God at work in us so that we might actually know the love of Christ. Say what now? That sounds crazy. We, not that we might just like memorize Jesus loves me and even believe that to be true pragmatically or even th- theologically. Paul would want that as well. But that we might know experientially the love of Christ. That whatever may happen in the world out there, we might know that Jesus loves me here, believing that to be true, unwaveringly so. Because as we'll see, it is knowing 
and experiencing the love of Christ, which will actually change your life. So let's backtrack. I I jumped ahead a little bit. Let's backtrack and back it up a little bit here. Back to verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So Paul here is praying that out of the overflowing abundance of God's glory and character, his weighty and praiseworthy character and being, that God would strengthen his people with power through his spirit, in their inner being. Now, our our inner being, we don't use these kinds of phrases or this language very much, but in Paul's understanding, our inner being, our internal, our thought and emotional life, what we long for, what we desire, what we worship, what we, at our deepest identity and core, what we want, the center of who we are, that that would be strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in your heart with faith. Now, Paul is not necessarily praying for conversion here. He's not saying that the Spirit would do this work of power in your life so that for the very first time you might, that Christ might dwell in your heart through faith. You might come to this initial saving faith. He's not praying for more of the death to life type realities of repentance and faith that he described in Ephesians 2. No, that's already a reality for these Ephesians. They have come from death to life. They do have faith in Christ. They have been in language we might use, been saved. So what is he saying here? Is he saying that uh, they might come to this, that Jesus isn't already dwelling in their heart? No. The word that Paul uses here for to dwell means much more of like a permanent settling down rather than another word that's often used for God, like dwelling in places, kind of like he did perhaps temporarily, like the tabernacle or the temple. Like, I could say, whether or not I rented a house or I owned a house, I could say, equally true, I live here, right? If I rent this house, I can say, I live here. And if I own this house, I say, I live here. We use the same word in the same way. But they are actually kind of different. They actually are describing different experiences. And so even though Christ moves in when someone comes to faith in him, he moves into their heart, Paul is praying that Jesus would become the absolute permanent tenant maybe even the landlord of the entire place. The landlord, he gets the say and he gets the ownership of the entirety of what we are, of what we long for, what we hope for, what we want. So it's one thing to come to initial saving faith in Christ, that in understanding your sin, your disobedience, your rebellion against God's demands for your life, that have now put you fundamentally at odds with him. It's one thing to come to that understanding that you are separated from God and under his good and just judgment. And then it's another thing to then come to an understanding of but God. That he is also rich in mercy and kindness. That he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This agape, covenantal, never wavering, faithful love. And that he demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus came to live and die as our substitute, a substitute of righteousness, that we might receive his record of goodness and love, and a substitute for sin, that he might receive our record of selfishness and sin, 
that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus when they put themselves under his wing of protection and love, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is what we call justification, that Jesus gives us right standing before God. But as we've said so many times, that the justification is not the goal, the end of what we hope for. Justification is just a means to an end. It is just the starting point of the gospel that God justifies sinners in Christ so that, that he might fill sinners with Christ. The Messiah, the fulfillment of all of God's promises, the anointed king of God's people, now dwelling permanently, not impermanently like some uh, king or son of David on this temporary throne in Jerusalem which was constantly under threat, which had now sat unfilled for centuries. But now this Messiah, this anointed king, would, as the king of his people, come to dwell permanently within his people, filling them with the glory of God. And when God's people are strengthened by God's spirit, they are more fully and comprehensively filled with God's Son. By faith, he becomes the, the landlord. But it doesn't stop there. That you, second half of verse 17, being rooted and grounded in love, and hang on just a second here. Now Paul is actually like completely mixing agricultural and architectural metaphors here. This rooted in love is agriculture language, that the love of God in Christ might be the very soil in which our lives are planted. We are rooted in his love, and we are grounded in love, that the love of God in Christ might be the sure and strong foundation on which our lives are built. And if, having been strengthened with power by the Spirit, having been less like come and go temporarily filled with the Son, but more fixed and settled permanently, filled by the dwelling of Christ in our hearts and in our inner being, the place of our eternal and emotional life, what we long for, what we desire, what we worship. And if all of this is happening in our lives, and our lives are being grown in, rooted in, settled on, built upon the love of Christ, then, and only then, might we, verse 18, have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we might be filled with the fullness of God. Now, verse 18 is a difficult verse to understand because Paul doesn't give us the object of what this breadth and length and height and depth are. Have you ever noticed that? I don't think I've ever noticed that until this week when I've been started studying this passage. We think, and both Matt and Kyle, I think rightly said the height and breadth and depth and length of the love of Christ, but that's actually not what Paul says here, is it? He just says that you might understand this, like all of the height and breadth and depth of what we're not sure. But I think he's actually explaining himself in the very next phrase, that we can assume that this actually is the love of Christ because in verse 19, that we might have strength to comprehend and to know the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, to know the love of Christ, the covenantal and faithful agape love of Jesus, meaning the love of Jesus isn't just something that you read about in a book or sing about in songs. Those can be very helpful ways for this truth and reality to settle in more deeply, but that we actually need a very powerful strengthening of the Spirit 
to help us to understand, to know, to comprehend, to experience something so big. Have you ever seen one of those YouTube videos uh, where it shows like the size of the moon and then the bigger earth and then Jupiter dwarfs the earth and then it zooms way out and the sun is so much bigger than Jupiter. Like our, our mind can barely comprehend that one million earths can fit in our sun. That is so hard to comprehend. But then it keeps going and then there's like these blue dwarf giants and red giant stars and whatever else. And that, get this, that five billion suns can fit in the largest known star. My brain like wants to like short circuit and shut down when I think about five billion suns, the sun of which one, or one million earths can fit in. That's too much to comprehend. Such is the love of God in Christ from eternity past to eternity future, to rescue individual sinners who had set their lives against him and still ongoingly worship themselves over him, the love of God in Christ to redeem the world, the cosmos to bring all things into unity with Christ. Five billion. And I don't even think we have even begun to have like the smallest little dot of understanding the love of Christ. We're not even like earth size yet in our understanding of the love of Christ and we've still got a million suns to go or a million earths and five billion suns to go, which is what we were thinking through last week when we were thinking about Paul saying that the mystery of Christ is now a plain and knowable open secret and yet his riches are unsearchable. It's plain and knowable, but you can't reach the end of it. Paul again says the same thing here in verse 19. This is a really weird thing that he says in verse 19. He prays that the Ephesians might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That doesn't make any sense. That you might know something that is unknowable. How can you know something that surpasses all knowledge? only through a supernatural working of God in power. And by this working of power, that our vision might be zoomed out and zoomed out and zoomed out to see something that we thought we got, had a handle on or a grasp of, that we might behold what we, we're just looking at like a lamp or something, and then we zoom out and we see that this lamp is part of a room, and then we zoom out a little bit more and we see a window. And then we zoom out a little bit more and there's many windows. And then there's lines of windows. And then we keep zooming out and zooming out and oh, it's a whole cruise ship. We, we were just seeing a lamp. This is what God's power does in the lives of his people that we might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And this last phrase is so key here, that by knowing, comprehending, experiencing the love of Christ, you might be filled with all the fullness of God, the triune glory and the riches of God in his people. Unfathomable, unsearchable, unknowable, but true. That when God saves a sinner, when he makes them his and brings them to spiritual life by the working of the power of his grace, he fills them with his spirit. Now and already, but there is a 
filling filling. I mean a real, real filling that Paul is asking for for the Ephesians that they might actually experience that may not even be yet experienced perhaps in this lifetime. A filling up of the entire empty milk jug of their hearts that finally and fully cleanses out all of the old, all of the sinful, all of the self-worshipping and manipulative, all of the weak and the broken and the short-sighted and the short-circuited. That he would fill them with all the fullness of God. It will be done. When we see him, we will become like him. Paul is just praying that God would jumpstart that process right now in the lives of his people, that they don't have to wait for eternity for that reality, that they might be filled with power, strengthened, that they might be filled with love, with worship, with joy for the glory of God and for their own peace, for their own adventurous life in Christ. And this is what Paul prays for. He is praying for the love of Christ, a powerful working of God that they might know the unknowable love of Christ, that the love of Christ might be comprehended, comprehended, known, and experienced deeply, deep and wide. Deep and wide, there is a fountain flowing deep and wide, far deeper, far wider than we could ever know. But this is what he's praying for, and it, this deep and wide fountain of the love of Christ is for you today, to be drawn from, to be planted in, to be built upon, that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you today. Not this cleaned up version of you in the future, but the one today, the weak and selfish version. That version of yourself is the one that Jesus loves, the one who is full of doubts and and anxieties and fears and insecurities of self-worship and of sin. Jesus loves you. This is the good news of the gospel. And yet the overwhelmingly good news of the gospel is that while Jesus loves us just as we are, he loves us too much to leave us as we are. He changes and transforms, he forms and he fills. The love of Christ will change your life. Not willpower, not just feeling bad about sin, not being around people that know the love of Christ, but to know and experience the love of God in Christ for yourself. Not a day-to-day, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me today because I've had a really great day and a really great week. He loves me not tomorrow because, well, I haven't. But he loves me, this I know. And yet the love of Christ, for the love of Christ, to begin to really, really do its work to really form and transform his people. God must do the zooming out of the eyes of our hearts. And so now that Paul has prayed for this miraculous zooming out that, the, that his people might know the unknowable, the love of Christ, now he praises the one who can do the zooming out. So secondly here, praise for the power of Christ. Ephesians 3.20 You guys know this verse? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Uh, This is a pretty famous verse, and I think it's pretty famous for the same reasons that Philippians 4.13 is famous. You know that verse, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? 
those verses, both of those verses, out of context, make it sound like, like if you have a dream, if you've got a vision, if you really want something to happen, Jesus can make it happen for you. You can do all things who strengthens you. And against all odds, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the, work, to the power at work within us, you can do it. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's go get him. So if you have a vision to start a new restaurant, or if you want to make a large investment into a new company, if you want something to really work out for your faith, if you've got a feeling about well, we'll just keep going. If you've got just this feeling, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, well, that's kind of silly. I think we might be able to see through some of that stuff. But it doesn't just have to be trivial, worldly stuff. I have heard Ephesians 3.20 preached more than once at churches who are beginning a capital campaign to build a new building. I have heard it preached at evangelism or church planting conferences that we are going to plant a church for every unreached people group in the world by 2030. Or where our church is going to see 100 baptisms next year. Or we're going to plant 50 churches from our church in the next 15 years. Those are all good things, right? We should be praying for those things. And all those kinds of evangelistic and church planting goals would almost certainly need a powerful work of Christ for those things to happen. But what is the context of Ephesians 3.20? Ephesians 3.20 is trying to answer the question, how in the world is it that the people of God can know the unknowable love of Christ? I'll tell you how. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you were at our member meeting last Sunday night, maybe you heard me wrap up our prayer time with reading, kind of praying through Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Maybe you thought, ah, oh, that's a really good passage. Maybe it was your first member meeting. Or perhaps you were really listening for the first time and you thought, ah, oh, I, I saw that coming. Uh, he's praying that passage from Ephesians 3 uh, because we're preaching through Ephesians. Here's the thing, members, if you've been with us for any time, uh, I have concluded every member meeting with this passage for the past six years. This passage right here is perhaps what I want most for us as a church. Knowing Christ, deeply experiencing the love of God in Christ, rooted in and built upon his love. And not just individually, as individual people, as individual Christians, but into verse 21, according to the power at work within me, within you singularly, within us, plural. The power of God at work within us, his people. And then just an explosive verse to wrap up this first half of the book. Verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. In the church, remember, chapter three, verse 10, that the manifold wisdom of God is actually made known. Where? Where do we 
most see the very wisdom of God most clearly displayed? In the church. That sounds counterintuitive, especially when we look around today at many American churches, perhaps even the difficulty within our own church. And we're saying, that's not a very wise God. Here's what Paul is saying, though. A redeemed people of various backgrounds, united by the blood of Christ, who are now covenanted together in love, that's a wise God. Saving and redeeming sinners, uniting them to Christ, uniting them together to bring peace. And while this spreading love of Christ certainly extends horizontally and outwardly, it's impossible to read Ephesians and not come to that conclusion, the wisdom of God and the love of Christ rooted in and built on love, what Paul's saying here actually extends generationally, generationally, not necessarily just horizontally, but deeply. That we don't want to have or see some like flash-in-the-pan converts here one day and gone the next, that we don't want to be a flash-in-the-pan church plant, that we might actually be here for generations, long past the lives of any of us in this room, that through difficulty, through transition, through times of uncertainty, that we trust that God is building and shaping us generationally, That we come to church on Sundays not just for ourselves, but for others, for our kids, for our kids' kids, for our friends' kids, for our friends' kids' kids' kids. We study and we sing and we pray individually and together for each other and for the sake of our grandchildren and for the person sitting next to you, their great-great-grandchildren. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we pray, not just for our joy, but for the joy of others. Horizontally and deeply, vertically, generationally, throughout all generations, Paul says, and forever and ever, that the gospel will continue to grow deep and wide through and from the deep and wide love of God in Christ until he returns and beyond forever and ever, amen. Knowing, comprehending, and experiencing the love of Christ actually takes a miraculous work of God, of intervention, of strengthening, of power, forming, transforming his people, not just in a moment in your past of coming to faith in Christ, but now, more so tomorrow, even more so tomorrow, and exponentially more into eternity. The work of God in Christ, this strengthening, is just jump-starting this process. This God and this love is what will transform his people generationally into this. Paul then says, amen. Which anytime this word would be said or read, the congregation listening would then respond with, amen which is just saying, I agree. Paul is writing, amen, so that he might elicit some kind of a response from his readers or his hearers. So I'm gonna read this whole passage again. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. I wrap up every member meeting like this. This might be the only time I get to wrap up a Sunday sermon with this. But I wanna read this, and I want you to listen, let it sink down into your, Paul's words, inner being. And then all of us might respond with amen, that I agree, yes, amen. 
And then, right after that, we're going to transition into a time of baptisms and then of welcoming new members into our covenant family, reading our covenant together to display the power of God in salvation, to display the love of God in conversion, to display the wisdom of God in the church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.